I want to start this morning uh, by asking a survey question for you, and I need you to kind of participate with me on this question. Uh, it's a pretty simple question. How many of you have hobbies? Anybody have hobbies in here? Yeah, if, uh, if, you, if you've been alive long enough, you probably figured out each one of us has some kind of hobby, something we enjoy to do outside of the usual work life. Uh, hobbies are kind of the things we enjoy. Uh, one of the things, one of my favorite hobbies, and most people that know me know this, one of the things that I enjoy to do the most outside of, um, you know, regular life is I like to hike. Now, believe it or not, this is not really much of a hiking body, but I actually do pretty good at hiking. That's my thing. That's what I love to do. And I'm looking forward to the day where my kids are old enough to where we can like go trouncing through the woods and trouncing through, uh, I don't even know if trouncing is a word, but anyway, going through the mountains and doing that kind of stuff. I just really enjoy that. I want to tell you about a particular story that I remember about hiking. I had the opportunity to take the uh, 11th through College Connection Group. We have a College Connection Group that meets uh, on Sunday nights. And I had the opportunity to take them hiking. And so we got up to Crowder's Mountain and we were hiking around that area. And we came upon a scene that was kind of disturbing. And we walked up and this lady, uh, I think she was a girlfriend or a wife or someone. This lady was standing or squatting over her husband and her husband was just laid out. And he was in a lot of pain. Because moments before we walked up on this, this young man, he had fallen about 15 to 20 feet off of a cliff. Now you can imagine, you see this lip here uh, on both sides here. Can you imagine falling off of something like that onto the ground, onto just rocks? So you can imagine the result of him falling like that. It was a very gruesome scene, not to get too graphic. It was a compound fracture and uh, it, was, it was bad. It was a very, very bad scene. And so in the midst of all of this, I was so proud of our connection group. Um, a lot of them are in here today. But in the midst of all that, uh, our lady started praying with the, the woman who, um, who, who this had happened with. And the man, we, we tried to figure out how we're going to get him off of this mountain. Because we were like in the midst of, of stuff and it was impossible to get him down the trail. And so we, we begin this process with EMS workers dra- like having him on a stretcher that's tied to a rope that's being belayed as we lower this man down to the trail. And, and you can imagine every little bump, every little graze of a tree, this man is screaming in pain. Pretty gruesome scene. This morning, the message is beauty in the fracture. And when you look at a, at a situation like that, you think to yourself, there's no way you can see beauty in that. It's a gruesome, gruesome scene. And although that's a very physical scene, a very physical world that that's taking place, I want us to think for a second in the spiritual world. Because just like this man's fracture of 15 feet drop, uh, his break, just like that kind of fracture, we live in a fractured and broken world. We live in a world that is surrounded by brokenness. You turn on the TV, what do you see? You see death, you see violence, you see sickness. I mean, you can't escape, if you're watching the news, you can't escape what's going on in Israel and Gaza right now. You can't escape the, what's going on in Africa with the Ebola virus. You can't escape these things. They are right there looking at, looking at us in the face. But it's not just those kind of things that we are seeing play out. 
Even here in good old Shelby, there's brokenness. It might not be on that big of a scale, but there's brokenness. There's brokenness in divorce. There's brokenness in a, a, a break in relationship. There's brokenness in loneliness. There's brokenness in grief. There's brokenness in secret sin that we hold on to. And so you have this. I mean, our, our world is one button away from, from nuclear war, one debt away from economic collapse, one argument away from divorce. And, and we're wondering... Where is the beauty in this brokenness? Where is the beauty in this broken world that we live in? But personalize it. Where is the beauty in this fractured life? Because each one of us, with our friends, our families, our situations, each one of us experiences brokenness. Today I want to talk about a man, <clears throat> excuse me, a man named Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, <clears throat> you want to talk about a broken situation? This man, Isaiah, was living in a broken situation. I, I got to say something kind of funny for just a second. Like during the 930 service, I, like it was deafening to hear pages turning. And it's so funny how this generation, like literally you're just snapping on your phone there. But anyway, that's weird. But anyway, here's the thing. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. But while you're turning there, however you do that, this man, Isaiah, is living in a broken situation, okay? Up until Isaiah, uh, the nation of Israel had experienced a golden age. You had King David that was on the throne. Um, some would argue he's one of the greatest kings to ever live in the nation of Israel. Did great things uh, through the help of God through that. His son Solomon built the temple, a place for them to worship. And the nation of Israel, for many years, experienced this prosperous life. And then, somewhere along the way, breaks started to come. Immorality, <clears throat> excuse me, immorality crept into the picture. Corruption, corrupt leadership crept into the picture. Idolatry crept into the picture. Injustice crept into the picture. And right when Isaiah is born and he comes onto the scene, he is born into the middle of one of the darkest times in Israel's history. This moment of brokenness. Just like Isaiah. Look at your introduction here. Just like Isaiah, we live broken lives in a broken world. And this fracture is beyond our repair. But there is hope in sight. Now we've heard that phrase before. It's kind of a cliche phrase, hope in sight. It's this idea that there's hope on the horizon. Or that there's hope in the future. When you say, oh, but there's hope in sight. It's this idea of we're not, we're not seeing hope now, but in the future, there's hope. In the, in the horizon, there's hope. Well, and that's, that's true. But when we see God, okay, when we catch a glimpse of who God is, there is hope in sight. And that hope is an immediate context. That we as followers, that we, uh, when we see God for who he truly is, when we truly see God with the eyes of our heart, that it's more than just a hope for the future. There is a hope that sits in the immediate context of seeing God for the first time or seeing God as he truly is in our lives. This is the kind of God that we serve. And there's power in sight. We see this all throughout Scripture. John the Baptist, when Jesus comes on the scene, the very first introduction we have 
of Jesus as an adult starting his earthly ministry comes with John the Baptist on the scene. He's, he's baptizing people. That's what John the Baptist does. He baptizes people. He's baptizing people. And Jesus is coming. And you know what he says? In John 1, he says this one word. He says the word, behold, look, see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The first word you see that introduces Jesus is the word that has to do with vision, has to do with beholding the Lamb of God. That's not the only occasion. John the disciple, the beloved, when he gets ready to write the most fascinating book about the future of this world, Revelation, what happens before he writes it? Revelation 1, he sees Jesus. He sees a vision of the Son of Man. And from that, he writes this incredible book that we call Revelation. Saul, on the way to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, Saul is persecuting and killing Christians. And on his way, the light of of God, the light of Jesus shows up, blinding light shows up, and he sees God, and his life has changed forever. This is what the power of sight is. The power of seeing God for who he is and what he's about. When we see God, when we get a real glimpse of who Jesus is, it changes us and we're never the same. And this is where you find Isaiah. You find him in the same place. And I want to walk through this little story here about how Isaiah sees God because I think it's the same way that we can see God as well. Look at the outline there. When we capture a vision for who God is, we see, we see some things. Here's the first thing we see. We see the breadth of his government. Now, breadth is kind of an old English word. Uh, and here's what it means. It means the extent of his government, the expansion of his government, the length and depth of his government. And this is what we see in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, 1 says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, Now, in just that little phrase, Isaiah is setting us up for what's about to happen. He's about to set us up for what's going on. Because you got to get this picture. I mean, Uzziah means nothing to us. We don't know Uzziah. I mean, we never met the guy. But for, for Isaiah, this is a big deal. Because Isaiah was a king that had reigned for 52 years in Israel. And his reign would be defined, for the most part, as prosperous. Most people like Uzziah. Most people appreciated him. And for the most part, for a lot of his life, he was in the graces of God. But something happened with Uzziah. He rebelled against God. And God did something that was frightening to the people of the nation of Israel. He cursed Uzziah. After 52 years of reigning, he cursed Uzziah with leprosy. And Uzziah dies. And back then, when a king died, that was a big deal, when any king died. But when a good king, when a king of prosperous 52 years dies, that's a really big deal. And so Isaiah's sitting there in this moment, of this dark time in history, sitting there, the king is dead, and he is sitting there in all this uncertainty. And it's a lot like our lives. I mean, the truth is, when we see this, when we see Isaiah, we can see our own lives in this because we're sitting there thinking, well, that's a lot like our world, is it not? There's so much uncertainty. The question that's on everyone's hearts and minds, not just lost people, but even on believers' hearts and minds at times, the question is, who is in control? 
I mean, you have all these stuff going on in the world. You have all this, this mess, this junk in the world. And we're sitting there and we're thinking to ourselves, who is in control? Is it the president? Is it the Congress? Is it, is it, is it our government? Is it, is it my employer at work? Is he, is he in control? Is it my wife? Is it my husband? But, but here's the thing. The question of who is in control is very important. It's an important question that's asked. And Isaiah, in this moment, after King Uzziah's death, he's got to be asking this question. He's got to be asking the same question that we ask. Who is it that's in control? And then it says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, look at what it says right after that. Great phrase. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Isaiah gets his answer here. He gets his answer for what is really all about. Who is in control? He gets it right here. And there's two things that Isaiah sees. Now, these are not on your outline because this came to me about two days ago. So you can write these in if you want to. Two words I want you to see here that Isaiah sees. The first word is assurance. There is assurance when Isaiah sees this. Because here's the thing. There is a king that died, but it's not this king. There is a king that reigned and lived and was cursed and died, but it's not this king. This king is alive. This king is the supreme creator of every living thing and non-living thing on the earth back then and right now. That's pretty powerful to think about. To think that there is a God that is in ultimate Ultimate sovereign control at this moment. And when Isaiah sees this, he's assured. There's a surety there because he sees God on a throne. And when we see God, when we see the depth and the breadth of God's government, we see God on a throne, there's assurance that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. It doesn't matter what's going on globally. It doesn't matter what's going on in our personal lives with all this stuff. The fact is that regardless of how bad it gets, there is a sovereign creator sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning. And that's incredible. Not only do you see assurance here, but you also see the word accountability. And this word scares us. Because when you really look at God, when you look at him for who he is and you see his supreme amazement, when you look at that and you look into the eyes of God and you see the extension of his government, it not only extends into the global, the macro of our world, it extends into our personal lives. And when it does, the word Lord has new meaning for us. You see, when we see God for who he is, when we see the breadth of his government, we see how big and powerful he is, it causes something in us. For us to see the word Lord, it's not just a, a, a nice word that we come up with for God. It means something. It means that he is sovereign over creation, and it also means he is sovereign over this life right here and your life right there. It means that the decisions that you make are not your decisions to make. It means the places you go, it's not your place to go. The things that you see, the things that you say, the things that you hear, the things that you do, they are not, should not be under your control. Because when we see God, we see that he is in control 
And we see that we have a part to play to allow him to be Lord in our lives. This is what Isaiah sees. He sees the breadth of his government, of of God's government, and he sees that. Look at the second thing he sees. He sees the brightness of his glory. Isaiah sees the brightness of his glory. When we get a picture for who God is, this is what we see. Look Look at verse one again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Now, this is a pretty crazy scene to think about. He's caught up in this vision of who God is, and everything in this vision is proclaiming who God is and all of his glory and and all of his splendor. I want you to to imagine something with me for a second. I want you to think. It's not really imagination. It's more of a think about your life for a second. Think for just a second about the most magnificent things that you have seen in your lifetime. I've had the opportunity to see some pretty cool things um, in my life. Uh, one of the things I got to see was this last trip to Nepal. A picture of it's going to come up on the screen here. But I was in Nepal on a mission trip. And the last day we were getting ready to leave. And our good friend Abraham, our partner there in Nepal, says to our group, do you guys want to pay a little extra money and, and fly around Everest in a little plane? And I said, uh, yes, that would be a great thing to do. Uh, the highest mountain in the world. And so we jump in a plane and we go around this and honestly, amazing, once in a lifetime moment, magnificent. When we look at this mountain, we see the creative genius that God is. The next thing that happened was this last summer, uh, my brother-in-law, great guy, he, he surprised me with a trip to Yosemite National Park. This is Yosemite National Park. And on that trip, he got tickets, which it's weird you have to get tickets for this, but it's just the way it is. He got tickets for us to climb to the very top of that mountain, Half Dome. And we, 11 hours in, we climb this mountain, we get to the top, and we're at the top, we're exhausted, but we look around and we see the magnificent glory that's there, beauty in creation. The last, the last thing that I've seen that was really pretty awesome that I got a picture of was I had the opportunity, a uh, very special trip, one of the most special trips I've ever taken. I had the opportunity to go to Jerusalem with my dad. And we went to Jerusalem in the last couple days. We're there in Jerusalem, um, and we hadn't actually seen the city yet. And our tour guide takes us to this place and he makes us get out of the bus. And he basically says, you don't ride into Jerusalem. You don't drive into Jerusalem, you walk into Jerusalem. And so he gets us out of this bus and there's this big crest that we have to walk up, this big hill that we're walking up. We still aren't seeing anything. And all of a sudden we get to the top and we look over and we get this view. And we see everything. We see the Temple Mount. We see the East Gate that one day Jesus is going to come back to and go through and walk through as a triumphant king. And I'm going to tell you, I got pretty excited. A pretty amazing, awesome scene. 
to behold. And maybe, maybe you have scenes like that in your life. Maybe you don't. Maybe you've hung out in Shelby most of your life and, and you don't have things like this. But here's the truth. The truth of the matter is there are things that you have seen that are more magnificent and, and things that I have seen that are more magnificent than even these pictures can show. There are some things that photos can't capture. And I want you to think about these for a second. I'll never forget the day. My wife was in the 930 service. She's, I think, in nursery right now serving. But you know what? I'll never forget today. When I'm standing at an altar in a little church in California with all my friends and family around and those doors open and I see my wife, my bride. Men, you know this. There is no camera that will do that justice. There is no camera that will capture what you're seeing at that moment. Or the, day, the three days in my life where my children were born that moment where that baby is here, finally, after nine months of waiting, that baby is here and you're picking up that newborn and his eyes are starting to open up and you're looking at your baby and you're thinking, I am your dad, you are my son, you are my daughter. These moments that we, we each one of us, each person in this room has moments like this, moments of magnificence that we really just look at and think, man, that's pretty cool. But here's the thing to remember, guys. There is nothing greater than what Isaiah is seeing at this moment. There's nothing greater. There's no beauty on earth. There's no beauty that we could even imagine that is greater then what Isaiah is seeing, Jesus, the King of Kings, in all of his glory, sitting, ruling, and reigning in all of his, his splendor. And everyone in his presence knows it. You see there the, these angels. These angels are shouting his greatness. One is saying to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the other one shouting to this one, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now step into this with me for a second because we read this and we kind of glaze over it. They have been saying these two phrases about God since the day they were created. They have been saying these two phrases about their God. They've been saying about God's greatness since the day they were created and they do not feel shortchanged in that purpose. Because they have seen God for who he is and they are satisfied with what they've seen. God is enough for them. We live in a generation of preferences. A generation who doesn't, that doesn't know how to actually be satisfied in life. We want more entertainments. We want more experiences. We want more this, more that. And the sad thing is that mentality in our lives, that preference way, we want more of this and this particular way of how we want it. That has creeped into our lives so much that it creeps even into our relationship with God. It creeps even into our church life. Come tell me another great story about God. Give me another good illustration about God. Sing me another traditional soft song about God. Sing me another new loud song about God. Give me more of this. Give me more of that. And here's the bottom line. If we could ever just capture 
a glimpse of who God is. And when we truly see who he is, the brightness of his glory, when we truly see that, then we are looking for a vision of God that is so strong and so real that it is durable to last us a lifetime. Or we can say and be satisfied with what God has given us and say, you're enough. Jesus is enough. That's where you amen, by the way. Jesus is enough. Amen. You know, this is the truth about God. There is nothing else we need. It's not like we see a vision from God and say, oh man, this is great, God. I'm so glad we're seeing you right now. I'm so glad I'm seeing how great and glorious you are. But I also need this in my life. And I also need this in my life. And I need this entertainment in my life. And I need you to do this for me and that for me. These angels are satisfied with who God is because they realize that God is enough. And in this moment, Isaiah realizes that as well, that he is enough. God is enough. The third thing you see here in Isaiah and what we can see in ourselves when we see God is that brokenness of our being. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5 says this. Isaiah's seeing all of this, and then he says this. He says, so I said, wow, that's really awesome, God. That's really cool how you did that. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say wow. It says woe, W-O-E. Woe is a rebuke. He says here, so I said, woe is me, for I am undone. I am destroyed. I am cut off. I am lost. I am ruined. I am broken. Get this picture. He sees God and he sees himself in the same moment. He sees God and he sees the depths of his brokenness, the depths of his soul. And look at what Isaiah says about himself. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We never really understand our condition without a clear view of God's character. And many of us know this. Many of us know that this is true. Because we know that if we get in God's presence, we've been around church enough, we know enough about God, that if we get in God's presence, he's going to reveal something, some part of us that's broken. And for many of us, we, 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 we have a hard time with our quiet times, honestly, because we know that the minute we get in our quiet time, the minute we get in God's word, the minute we have a prayer moment with God, he's going to say, you're broken here. This last week, I had an experience like this. I'm kind of a transparent person. Our students know this. And so if you don't like transparency, just close your ears and listen. Or don't listen. But, but here's the truth. This last week, man, I, I was a jerk to my wife about something. And I knew I was, man. I knew I was. And I knew I was broken in that area. But I didn't want to face that. And so for a couple days, I didn't. I didn't face it with her, and I didn't face it with God. Maybe I'm the only sinner in here that does this, but literally I get in, I get in the car, and I got the music on, and usually it's some kind of worship music, and, and I did. I, I could feel it. I'm like, oh, I need to turn that off. Because I wasn't ready to face the brokenness. Because when we see God, we have to face our brokenness. 
And at this point, we would think to ourselves, for Isaiah's sake, we would think he's done for. This unholy, broken sinner in the presence of a holy, unbroken, perfect God, he's done for. And God at this point has every right to end Isaiah, to end him. But look at the fourth thing. This is what we see when we see God. We see the beauty of his grace, the beauty of his grace. Isaiah 6, verse 6 says this, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which, we, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity, guilt, your guilt, your iniquity, it's taken away, and your sin is purged. This holy and perfect God is a God of love. And in his divine benevolence, he goes to Isaiah and he cleanses him. And at this point, Isaiah never gets over it. He never is the same again after this. And he spends the rest of his life proclaiming and prophesying about the beauty of God's grace. Not out of obligation, but out of sheer joy and love for his Savior. This, this is true for us. A test that we've seen God and we've captured a vision for who he is is that it changes us. When we see the beauty of his grace, it changes us like it did Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, just turn over a few more pages to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Here in the latter years of Isaiah's life, he shows us the beauty of God's grace in showing us the God-man that is to come, Jesus Christ. Isaiah writes and prophesizes, 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 prophesies about Jesus. So what is the beauty of God's grace? He gives us this all throughout Isaiah, but it's right here, a lot of it's right here in verse 50 or chapter 53. The first thing is this: we are broken. We are broken. This is not a popular phrase in a world of self-promoters and self-importance. Everything in our culture, from Instagram to TV to movies to books we read, most of that stuff promotes one thing, the greatness of ourselves. And the truth of the matter is the beauty of God's grace starts with the fact that there's nothing great about us, that in actuality we are hopelessly lost and broken. And this is where it starts for us. This is why we have the cross. You see, the cross is not just the cross. It's our cross. The cross is not just the cross. It's our cross. We know the truth about the cross. We know that he was, he was uh, put on the cross around 9 a.m. We know he came off the cross around 3 p.m. after he had passed away. We know that he was put in a tomb, Joseph's tomb. We know he rose again on the third day. And we hear all this information. We know all this stuff. And we have grown comfortable, I have grown comfortable with the cross. Everything at our church, every logo that you see with Putnam's name on it, has, usually has a cross on it. We have this cross right here with this, this nice light shining, shining on it. And it's surrounded and it's pretty and it's white and it's sleek. And it's here every Sunday morning sitting here. 
And if you really pay attention, you know, before we remodeled this building, the cross was this way and now it's this way. Some people like it better this way. Some people like it better that way. And here's the truth about all of that. It's insignificant. Because the fact of the matter is that the cross, the cross that is true, the cross that is real, is an old rugged cross that's blood-stained and that has my name on it. It's bloodstained and it has your name on it. The cross of Jesus, the cross that Jesus died on. He didn't die on the cross. He died on my cross. He died on my cross. Jesus died on that cross. And until we realize this, the gospel will just be pretty good news. And we will miss the beauty of his grace. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says this, Surely he is born our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reason many of us can hear songs like we just heard about the amazing love of God and remain unmoved, thinking about what we're going to eat for lunch that day. The reason we can come in here on Sundays and hear a great message from our pastor with a great application that's convicting and that application only lasts till Monday. The reason that, that we can gather, and this is not everyone, but the reason that some of you can come into this building and be a part of this church for years and years and months and come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and remain unmoved and unchanged and unexcited about the beauty of God's grace is because we've forgotten about this that this is our cross and that he has come to take care of our brokenness. We have forgotten the depths of our brokenness. God's grace starts with our brokenness. Number two, the beauty of God's grace is that Jesus became broken. I don't have time to get into this, but it's gonna come on the screen here. Matthew 26, it talks about the last supper and it says that Jesus takes the bread. He takes the bread and he breaks it. He takes the cup and he shares it. He gives it. And he says, this is my body. This is my blood. And he says, this is the establishment. This is the new covenant. And this is common for prophets. This is common for people who are telling something of the future. Many times they would tell what's about to happen. And as they would tell it, they would act it out. This is what he's doing with the bread. This is what he's doing with the cup. He is showing them this new covenant. You see, the crucifixion, the plan of salvation was not some scheme hatched up by Romans and Jews. It was the divine plan of God before the foundations of the earth, the way to save humanity, to save brokenness, the way to, for us to not have to be on this cross, but for us to be freed from it. And then he goes a little further. He goes into the garden and he starts. He starts this and he says to his father, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Well, what is this cup? What is the will of the Father? 
This verse has always astounded me. It's right here in, in, in 50, uh, Isaiah 53, verse, starting with verse 7, it says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Talking about Jesus. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led on to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence... And there was no deceit in his mouth. And this verse is the verse that gets me. Listen to this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him, God has put him, his son, to grief. God wasn't a passive bystander when Jesus died on the cross. It wasn't like God was just hands off when his son was on the cross. In fact, God's focused wrath was placed on Jesus. Can we get this picture? Look at at verse 10 again. Yet it was the will of the Lord. Some translation says, yes, it, it was the will or it pleased the Father to crush him. He has put him to grief. I have such a hard time imagining this. But I had, a, I had an experience that happened about three, three weeks ago that, honestly, one of the worst experiences of my life, to be quite honest. I have a, uh, a three-year-old, or sorry, three-month-old. And I'm sitting there with my three-month-old, and I'm picking him up off the bed, something that you do a million times a week, something I've done a million times a week. And as I'm picking him up and rolling him towards me, he, he grabs the sheet, he grabs the bed, and his arm gets caught. And it was too late. As I put him in my arms, as I rolled him to me, I heard it snap. A three-month-old with an arm that's broken. And I heard it. And I look at my son, and, and he has that moment where in his eyes, and I know he's three months, he's probably not understanding it like I, like I think he is, but I see this look of, why? And this look of horror comes on my son, and he just starts to well up and starts screaming. I'll just tell you, and, and, and I, I know, listen, I'm not being insensitive here. There, there are families in this room, there are families in our church that go through so much worse they have to go to the hospital with their kids. They have to, like, like ongoing things. And that's, that's tremendously awful. For me, this was honestly the worst moment I've ever had as a father. Because as you fathers know, and as I know, I would rather every bone in my body break than to do that to my son, than to accidentally hurt him like that. But yet, look at this. It was the will of the Father to do this. It pleased the Father to do this. Why would this please the Father? Why would this be the will of the Father? I mean, Isaiah's writing this. He's got two sons. He's got to be thinking, why, God? Why would you do it this way? And the question is not, why would God allow this? The question is, why would God do this? He is the one that's placing the wrath on the Son. And the reason is number three, the beautiful exchange. 
The fact is, beauty has become broken so that broken can become beauty. This was the plan from the beginning. God was going to bring on the wrath. God was going to bring on the pain. God was going to break his son so that we wouldn't have to be broken anymore. The beauty that is Christ Jesus was going to be broken by the wrath of God so that we can be beautiful in the sight of God, that we wouldn't be repulsed by a holy and just God, but that we, like Isaiah, can have our sins, our iniquity, our guilt, that we can have it taken away. This is the way it had to be. This is why it was the will of the Father to hurt his son, to break his son. Jesus has come to offer us an exchange. An exchange from brokenness to grace. Look at this verse. This is a verse, a passage that Jesus actually quotes. It's from Isaiah. But in Luke 4, he's at Nazareth. He actually tells them, this is the reason why I've come. And here it is. This is what Jesus says. And it's in Isaiah 61. It's on the screen here too. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me, listen to these exchanges. He has, has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness." The planning of the Lord. And here's the ultimate reason why Jesus came. It's this last part. That he may be glorified. Jesus has come to exchange your brokenness for his grace. The application says the beauty of this fractured life that we live is that God through Jesus Christ has exchanged our brokenness for his grace. All we have to do is see and respond. See and respond. I'm going to ask you, we're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. During this time of invitation, I'm going to ask that you keep your eyes closed and that you stay uh, in your seat. You don't have to stand up and sing with us. But during this time, you know, a lot of times for us to see God with the eyes of our heart, a lot of times we have to close our physical eyes to remove distractions. But here's the question today for you. When did you see God? When did you see God like Isaiah saw God? I'm not, I'm not talking about this, this moment where you're caught up in some kind of transcendent third heaven kind of deal. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this moment where you realize the breadth of his government, the brightness of his glory, the brokenness of yourself, and the beauty of his grace. When have you, when have you seen God that way? For some of you, the, the question is not when, the question is have you? Have you seen God? It's not enough to come to church. It's not enough to be a part of a congregation. What matters to God is, have you seen him? 
And the truth is, for some, the reason you can't see them is because you, you haven't seen your brokenness. For everyone in this room, there are two things. There are two things that, that compel you and keep you from seeing God. The first one is self-righteousness. For some in this room, maybe you don't see your brokenness. Maybe you don't see the depths of your betrayal towards a holy God. And you're just building your righteousness up. You're serving the body. You're doing this. You're doing that. You're behaving well. But Isaiah says in Isaiah 64 that your righteousness is filthy rags. There's nothing in and of yourself that's worthy. So for some of you today... It's time to drop that self-righteousness. For some of you today, maybe you're a believer in here and you saw God many years ago and now you're in this place. You're in this place now where you've forgotten. You've forgotten about the cross. You've forgotten what this cross represents. That it's your cross. For others in here, maybe it's self-unrighteousness that's keeping you from seeing God. For some of you, you're sitting there and we're talking about brokenness in this world. We're talking about brokenness in your lives. And you're thinking to yourself, Jonathan, you don't even know what brokenness is, man. I've been broken. My life, my world is so broken. And you have a hard time believing that God can fix it. God can come in today and make all things new. He can trade in your ashes, he can trade in your brokenness for his beautiful grace. So where are you at this morning? I don't know. But during this time, I'm going to ask that you just sit there quietly with your eyes closed. Listen to this, to this song and, and just do what God would have you do. Maybe reflect on this moment of, of your brokenness. Maybe reflect on where you are with God. I'll be here at the front. Uh, other pastors will be here as well. During this moment, just do what God would have you do. God, we thank you, Lord, that you are the God of the broken, that you have healed us, Father, Lord. We don't have to walk in fractured lives anymore, God. We can be made righteous. We can be made beautiful, God, in your sight, Father, because of what you did for us, that beautiful exchange, Father. So, God, help us to embrace that, Lord. Help us to see that in a new way today, God. And, Lord, if there's someone in this room that doesn't know you, someone in this room, God, that's never seen who you are, God, I pray today would be the day, Lord, that their eyes would be open and that they would respond. God, that you would just have your way in this moment of invitation. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, just do what God would have you do.